Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if I can even begin to grasp what we're dealing with right now. Maybe it's beginning to sink in for you. But as far as I can see, what's, what's on unfolding before our eyes is the greatest change that's happened for generations. Everything must change. How, how we live, how we live our faith, how we involve ourselves in church, how we connect with friends, how we work, how we come together as family when we're all cooped up in the same place together or we're spread out further than we ever have been before. How we homeschool, how we use our time, how we participate in very, very, a very different economy. And how we see ourselves when what used to de define us as productive and useful and meaningful has all been called into question. Our value in this culture is all tied up in what we do, what we produce, what services we provide. And for many of us, all of this productivity has been brought to a grinding halt. Students are in the same boat as those in the workforce. For much of your value is defined by what you produce also. A's on papers, your grade point average, making the team, making the big play, breaking your record, scoring the goal, getting to be in the school musical, playing an instrument, being in the band, working towards first chair. All these things that we do define us. Retired people who, who finally have time to travel and to fulfill all the things on their bucket list and finally have time to get together with friends and just hang out for coffee at McDonald's or wherever, even those things that you enjoy in your retirement have changed. You can't do most of those things right now. Older generations have dealt with the impact through their parents and, and grandparents, the ravages of World War I and the Depression World War and World War II. We heard the stories about the Depression and World War II. I remember how we heard about how people of those generations, they, they saved every penny they could, and, and they would use and reuse the things they had and never throw anything away because, well, you might need it someday. Those of us who are older, and you can define for yourself who, who the older people are, we have dealt more directly with the conflict in Korea, Vietnam War, and all the impact on, on our culture at that time. Younger generations have been dealing with the Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so much more. These disruptors to normal life, if there is such a thing as normal life, these disruptors have shaped us and have made us to become fiercely independent. 
we are used to taking care of our, ourselves and, and our loved ones, and we don't want to be a burden to anyone, especially our kids, or to the younger generations. We like to think that we can just do things for ourselves. That's what defines us. This disruptor that we are facing now, this disruptor to normal life, has turned all of that upside down. And even though we can't be together in the same place physically, we need each other more than ever. And our future is dependent upon us being able to connect with each other and get used to or at least adjust to this new way of living and being in the world and being in community. What people did to survive in the past was so important for their, for their survival. And here we are. The circumstances that are imposed upon us now are making it necessary for us to develop a whole new way of doing things to survive today. What doesn't work is every man for himself, every woman for herself, what doesn't work is pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. What doesn't work is going where you want to go, doing what you want to do, no matter who you're around or wherever you go. No one can tell you to do otherwise. That way of thinking and being does not work anymore. It is not the most loving, caring thing to do. The change that is being expected of us goes against our very nature. How do we handle it? Well, what we need more than ever is love, love for God, love for one another, and a whole lot of humility. Families are learning very quickly about humility. We have to watch out what we pray for and wish for, don't we? Oh, I wish we could have more quality family time. Well, this is not quite what you had in mind, is it? There's a lot more dirty dishes, a whole lot more clutter, a lot more chaos. How do we keep everybody busy? It's crazy. It's, it's humbling to get what we wish for. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, And all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter knew something about humility. When Jesus first met Peter, Peter was a very successful fisherman. He and his brother had boats and nets, and they had lots of customers, and they had a way of, of, of making a decent living with what they had. I envision Peter as sort of being, a, a, well, arrogant. He had this knack of always saying something 
without thinking, just blurting it out, right or wrong, and it seems that most of the time he was wrong. At least how that's how the gospel writers portray and show us Peter. If we look at all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are the heroes of faith that that come to Jesus that Jesus notices? Jesus dines with tax collectors and prostitutes, sinners. He heals the servant of a centurion, a Roman soldier, the enemy. Jesus goes to the home of a very short and very powerful tax collector. He has dinner with him. This tax collector is hated by everyone. Heroes of faith, a boy with five loaves and two fish who believes that he can share his lunch to feed thousands. Heroes of faith, a woman with an issue of blood that believes that if she can just touch the fringe on Jesus' robe that she'll be healed Heroes of faith, a foreigner, a woman from another country whose child is sick at home, and she believes that if she can just provide the crumbs under the master's table from Jesus, that her child will be healed. To explain what the kingdom of God is like and what God is like, Jesus tells us stories about a woman who loses a coin, about a shepherd who loses a sheep, a father that has two sons that really don't like him very much, about a a man who throws a party for his friends and and none of them show, show up. He ends up opening the doors to all the riffraff in town. To a Samaritan, Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan who helps a man in need. These are the heroes of faith in Jesus' eyes. So how do the Gospels describe the disciples? Well, they do a few good things, don't they? They follow Jesus. They go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, and they pray for healing for those who are sick, and they see these miracles happening, these people being healed. But how else do the Gospels describe the disciples? Afraid. Afraid of storms. Doubtful. They have no idea how they're going to feed all of these people in the wilderness when they come out there to hear Jesus preach. Arrogant. Discussing among themselves who, who of them are the greatest, who's the greatest. And when it mattered most, when they needed to pull together and be there to defend Jesus and stand together in loyalty, they all fall apart. They become betrayers and deniers and deserters. Peter, who became known as the leader of the disciples, denied knowing Jesus three times. Now, there was no tape recorder there to record the conversation that he had with this servant girl as she accused him of being one of Jesus' disciples. 
There was no video camera. None of the other disciples were around. They all deserted Jesus. The only person who knew this story was Peter himself. And he could have taken that story to the grave with him. No one would have had to ever know. The ones who first told the stories of Jesus, what he said and what he did, and what Jesus taught, the ones who, who were the sources for all those stories were the disciples. The Gospels are written from the viewpoint of the disciples, and they appear to be doubtful, confused, fearful, ambitious, and in the end, they abandoned Jesus, except for one very big surprise that changes them forever. The accounts in the Gospels show the heroes of faith to be powerless women and children, foreigners, sinners. And the prevailing story told of the disciples is that well, they were the failures, the screw-ups, the ones who lacked courage and faith. And they shared their experience of Jesus and his teachings, and the Gospels took shape and form, and it seems to me that the disciples finally learned a lesson in humility. They could have told the story so differently but they chose to be humble, to be honest about who they were as they spoke about their life with Jesus. The disciples, who were the sources of the accounts that made it into the Gospels, told the stories of the ones that were really humble, the nobodies, the despised, foreigners and sinners, and showed us that the humble are the ones who had faith and received grace. Now, it may have taken all the years that the disciples were with Jesus, and it may have really taken the resurrection before they finally got it. But it appears that the disciples learned finally how to be humble too. Jesus taught about humility. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are humble, for you shall inherit the kingdom of God. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, Jesus brought a child before them and said, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, then humble yourselves. Become like a child. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Well, what's clear to me, and I don't know, you might have to just figure this out for yourself, but if God favors anyone, it's not the ones who are on top. It's not the ones who are sure of themselves. It's not the arrogant. It's not the proud. It's the ones who are powerless, invisible, not noticed, humble, their value and our value is found not in what we accomplish and what we do. Their value and our value 
is found in this great truth that we are all God's beloved children. And no virus can take that away. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. As we apply our faith in Christ to these changing circumstances that have come as a result of the coronavirus, the best course of action is to be humble, to be loving, to be the body of Christ. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You may be used to not needing anybody and not expecting anybody to need you. But in the body of Christ, all are needed. All have a place. All belong. So if we're going to be the body of Christ, then we have to rely upon each other, and we need to accept the help of each other. Here's one of the ways that we can really change. We are to become each other's burdens. It's okay to be a burden. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my load is light, and you will find rest for your souls. When we become each other's burdens in Christ, the burden is easy and the load is light. And as Jesus promises, we will find rest for our souls. Becoming a burden when we're not accustomed to being anybody's burden requires a sacrifice of our pride. Humble yourselves so that you are in the right frame of mind to be a burden. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you, or because, well, because you do. We are the body of Christ. So let's start living like it. There is another very important lesson about humility. It's, it's being able to admit that we don't have all the answers. If you are used to being in charge, being the one who everyone turns to, to have a plan, to have the answers, to have the confidence to reassure everyone that things are going to be just fine and the resolution is just around the corner, that's a big burden to carry, especially when your coworkers look to you or your family looks to you and they ask, are we there yet? Is this almost over? Will life get back to normal soon? 
The best answer is, I don't know, but I hope so. Honesty about what we don't know and unshakable hope. I believe in unshakable hope in God who loves us, who laid down his life for us in Jesus, and who lives today so that we will receive the ultimate victory. Humble yourselves. God gives grace to the humble. Amen.